Our sermon passage today continues on in our sermon series, True and Better, the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up this week where we left off last week. We'll be looking at John chapter 3, starting in verse 22. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. And this was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I, I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. So those who know uh, my story, my sense of uh, feeling called to come to Dunn, come back where I'm from to plant a church, know that this is something that I thought about and wrestled with and prayed about for years. Um, in fact, I think it was 2012, nine years ago, that Angela and I decided um, together that it was that I was going to go to seminary, we were going to move to Florida, and eventually come back and be a part of a new church here in Dunn. And so I went through seminary, I finished seminary, and when I finished seminary and we were starting to make the definite plans about coming back to, to start this new church, I suddenly found that my heart was filled with fear and anxiety. And now some of that is natural, and there's nothing wrong with feeling a little you know scared at the start of something new. Uh, that's not a problem. But I was wrapped up with this fear that we were going to come back and this thing that had always just been the future, we had talked about the future, what we were going to do, was now here. And it was time to start taking definite steps and it was scary. And I was afraid that we would get back to Dunn and be here a couple years and everything fall apart. And so I actually went to a counselor and I was talking to him about this and I said, I'm scared about going home and looking foolish and falling flat on my face and we get started and you know have to close up shop in a couple of years and it's just a failure I'm afraid of failure and he said a couple of things that have stuck with me something that I've thought about often um, 
And he said, uh, I'll summarize here, I won't repeat everything he said, but he said this, Tim, do you know that God loves you? He's proven that in Jesus. God loves you. And he's calling you to this, not to make you look foolish. He is calling to you to this so that church planting in Dunn, North Carolina, whatever it might look like, for however long it may be, will be the place where you are loved by him. God loves you, and he has called you and is placing you where he's putting you to love you there, for it to be the theater of his grace for you. That I don't have to worry that God's going to call me somewhere and leave me hanging. That I'm not in competition with God, where I have one set, uh, I want the best for me, but he definitely doesn't. And he said, I can't promise you how it's going to look. I can't promise you it won't be. You're there a few years and something happened and you have to close up shop. But I can tell you this, that success in the kingdom of God is not measured by the way we tend to measure success everywhere else. We're not in competition with God. And we can't be. He's God and we're not. But he said this to me and I'm saying this to you before we jump into the, the rest of the sermon. I can promise you this on the authority of Scripture. God will use every thread of your story to build a tapestry of His grace. And He will work even in the strange and bad things to center you more and more on Him. Him, the one who can and will work things out for His glory and your good. God loves you and He has placed you where He's put you. He's called you to where He's calling you for it to be the place where you are loved. Now, these kinds of anxieties that you're going to look foolish, these kind of anxieties that something's going to slip away are present in our passage today, which we just read from John chapter 3. They're present in the disciples of a man named John the Baptist. Now, we met John in the first chapter of this gospel. He's a huge figure uh, just before the time of Jesus. And the gospel writer in John chapter 1 tells us that John the Baptist has come as this unique witness that Jesus is coming into the world. The light of God is coming into the world in Jesus. And John the Baptist is sent beforehand to announce that the king of God's kingdom is arriving. He's sent ahead of time like a herald announcing the arrival of a king into a town. Get ready. Everyone get ready. <laughs> the king is coming. And so we see in this first chapter what that means. Jesus arrives on the scene and John has gathered this uh, pretty big following. He's got a lot of people coming out to him. He's come to the attention of the religious authorities in Jerusalem who have sent people to question him. And Jesus arrives on the scene, and he comes up actually underneath John the Baptist's ministry. And John points to Jesus, and he tells those who are following him, this is the one I am telling you about. I've told you that the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world is coming, and he is here. That's him right there. And so Jesus arrives on the scene, and John the Baptist immediately starts losing followers. The very first followers of Jesus were followers of John the Baptist who left John the Baptist and started following after Jesus. And he loses these followers because John pointed Jesus out to them. In fact, a number, uh, and on a basic level, this looks to us like a loss. It is a net loss. Jesus showed up, and John the Baptist had less followers, right? It is a loss. 
John loses a number of followers. I'm sure he lost resources. I'm sure he lost uh, uh, budget numbers that were available to him before, whether he cared about that or not. And he begins, uh, John the Baptist and his ministry, to look less impressive. He's less of a novelty. The crowds are suddenly smaller. He still has a following, but his notoriety, his uh, star power, his influence is starting to wane. It's dwindling as Jesus' ministry begins to start. And what we see in our passage today is some of John's disciples get worried about this. Suddenly, it looks to them, they look around, they see less people. It looks like their movement, what they've been a part of and really felt called to, is starting to dwindle. It's starting to get less and less uh, successful looking to everyone on the outside and on the inside. Look at verse 25. It says that there was a man who began to argue with John's disciples about ceremonial washing. Now, we know that uh, in, in the first chapter of John's gospel, there were emissaries sent from Jerusalem who were asking John questions about how dare you baptize. You didn't come up under the proper temple authorities, and you're out here baptizing uh, not at the temple. You're in the wilderness, and you're telling people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. How dare you? And so here in uh, chapter 3, this uh, argument, this division is still going on. There are people saying, John, how dare you continue to baptize? Um, you, you, uh, you didn't come up under the proper authorities. You can't preach. And in this dispute, some worries begin to, to show themselves. And the disciples of John the Baptist come to him after this uh, argument they've had with this man. And they say, Rabbi, John, that man, Jesus, who was with you, the one you testified about. Look, he's baptized. Everyone is going to him. Everyone is going to him. And what they're doing here is in their fear, in their anxiety about what it looks like is happening in front of them, that their, their movement is dwindling, it's losing steam. They come to John, and they appeal to his sense of, of importance. They call him their rabbi. The one who came before Jesus, who started baptizing people and calling them to get ready for the arrival of God's kingdom, they're appealing to him and his sense of importance that he could have. And John the Baptist, of all people, could have had a justified sense of importance, right? He lived set apart for God. He was used by God to call many, many people to him. He was used uniquely to prepare the way of Jesus. And I suppose when his disciples came to him here, they were hoping John the Baptist would respond in a sense of almost jealousy. Maybe he would uh, go to Jesus and try to get this whole Jesus guy under control. Or maybe he would break with Jesus completely and make a public statement and take the wind out of Jesus' sails. But that's not what happened at all. We already read the passage. That's not what happened at all. Remember, John the Baptist had a very clear understanding that Jesus wasn't just another leader coming on the scene. That this wasn't just the normal rise and fall of popularity that happens in leaders and movements. That Jesus wasn't showing up and stealing anything from John. They weren't in competition with each other. That in Jesus, what was happening was God was breaking into the darkness of our world with his light. Bringing a kingdom that operates on fundamentally different rules of what matters of what's valuable, of what's worth and worthy. That Jesus was bringing nothing less 
than the reign of God into our world. And because John had a very clear understanding of this and his role as someone that came beforehand to announce that this was coming, that in Jesus God was breaking into our world to bring his grace, success for John couldn't be defined in numbers. It couldn't be defined in the amount of resources. It couldn't be defined on anything else that we tend to attach worth to. Success for John in as much as he thought about it, was defined by Jesus and Jesus alone. Even among the worries that he might have had about his own place, if he had doubts, he could take them back and understand that the value and the worthiness of him as a person and his movement was 100% defined by Jesus, not the amount of people that were following him, not the impressiveness of the resources that he had. And so what does he do? He counters their attempts to drive a wedge between him and Jesus. Look at verse 27. And John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. John tells them very plainly here, his ministry, his calling that he had received from God was not something he built. He didn't think it up one day and work really, really hard to make it happen. It was given to him. He didn't get to the top by edging everyone out, by being super competitive and making sure the people who might uh, might have also been preaching were squashed. He didn't need to measure his sense of worth and calling by comparison. He was given a calling by God. It was given. That's a key word. It was given to him as a gift. It was not a paycheck that he earned. And whether this calling looked like preaching to big crowds like he had already done that kept getting bigger and bigger, or it looked like frustration that people weren't taking him seriously, or whether that calling looked like he had to move locations, which we see he had to do here in this passage, he was living in the calling that the the God who loves him gave him. A calling God gave him to be the place, the theater of God's love for him. So John realizes here that his vocation, a word that people have used, the calling, the things that he has done with his time and money and resources, that the value of his calling is not that it was a prominent one. It's not that he was the public face of a movement. The value of his calling was the one who called him to it. The value of his gift was the giver. He didn't detach the significance of his ministry, his platform, or whatever from the place it had in God's overarching plan, not just to bring a strong leader like him into the forefront of the public eye for a few years, but again, sent as an emissary ahead of time to be the announcer that God's kingdom in Jesus was breaking into this world. The gospel writer expands on this in verse 31. It's kind of an explanation or a commentary on what's going on in this scene. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. He's talking about Jesus here. The one who comes from the earth, John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. The point that's being made here by John the Baptist and here in this kind of commentary in verse 31 by the gospel writer of John is this. There's something utterly unique about Jesus. He's not just another leader in a long line of leaders. John the Baptist knew that. That's why he didn't feel a sense of competition. It wasn't loss 
that Jesus was being seen for who he is. Jesus is fundamentally different. We see this from the very beginning of the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God who was with the Father in the beginning. He is, in a sense, God sent by God. He's not just a, 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 a good man. He comes from heaven, and he's above all, as it says in verse 31. His source is fundamentally different from even a man like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was called by God, right? That's not what's going on here. It's not saying John Jesus was called by God and John wasn't. But what it's saying is there's something fundamentally different about Jesus. Look at verse 32. It says that Jesus doesn't just say the words that God had given him. He, quote, testifies to what he has seen. Now, all the other people that are called by God before the time of Jesus, John the Baptist, the prophets of the Old Testament, even back to Moses, Abraham, they're sent as witnesses to what God had revealed to them, but they had limited knowledge. God revealed to them a portion of what he wanted said at whatever time they lived in history and whatever was going on. In fact, if you go back and read like uh, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, you'll see this phrase, this is what the Lord says, and then they kind of report. Or in the old King James, thus saith the Lord. But what does Jesus say? If you read through the Gospel of John, when Jesus is speaking, he says, Very truly, I say to you. Very truly, I say to you. It's a, it's a different form of introduction of what he's about to say. And the point that's being made here is Jesus is testifying to what he has seen, as it says in verse 32, that Jesus is... Uh, as far as it comes to God, he's an insider giving insider knowledge in a sense. In fact, the identity of Jesus is so wrapped up in the identity of who God is that it can be said, as it says in this passage, that when Jesus speaks, God speaks. As I said, Jesus speaks and he's giving insider knowledge as an insider. He's not just making an announcement of something he's been made aware of. It's not just he's been given limited information and a calling by God to announce. No, Jesus is God sent by God. Jesus speaks about God with insider knowledge because he himself was with God in the beginning. And he himself was God, as it says in John 1. We can see this, as I said, in how Jesus teaches. He doesn't say, this is what the Lord says in report. He says, very truly, this is what I say. He's speaking on his own authority. He doesn't have to. Re he does refer to the authority given to him as a man by God, but he speaks on his own authority. A fundamentally different kind of leader. That's what it means in verse thirty-four when it says that he's been given the Spirit without limit. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. God's Holy Spirit has worked throughout history to empower and to renew. But every time the Holy Spirit's given, like in the Old Testament, it's always partial. It's always just for a limited time, for a specific task. But Jesus, Jesus, as the one who is truly God and truly man together in one person, he receives the Holy Spirit without limit. He's an insider with insider knowledge. Now, we're limited creatures. Receiving the Spirit of our Creator is like an ocean of water being poured into a thimble. But Jesus is given the Spirit of God without limit. He is able to receive the life of God in a full and complete way that we can't and then turn around and become the fountain of God's grace for us. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. Jesus can turn and give us 
the unending source, the well of God's grace and life and joy to us. And He's received it without limit and can give it to us in the way that we need. Um, Not partially, not limited, like a John the Baptist or somebody from the Old Testament. Jesus is utterly unique and He can be the source of joy and life and salvation for us. Now this, uh, this is the kind of language that stretches our minds, in a sense. And we should expect that. We're talking about the eternal God. We have to use limited human language to talk about these eternal things. Even language that God inspired himself is going to fall short to define the realities. But this is a peek into inside of the doctrine of the Trinity. Verses 34 and 35, it said, The Father loves the Son and gives the Spirit without limit. And so the eternal relation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is this eternal dynamic of love. Think of it that way. The Father loves the Son, not in a limited, partial way, but eternally. It's fundamental to who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this uh, eternal (laughs) interaction, this eternal dance of love, this dynamic of love. And the picture here is an eternal relationship of unity and love. Like I said, insider knowledge Jesus, the eternal, incarnate, eternal Son of God, speaking to what he's seen and heard. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and he starts talking about the love of the Father, he's talking about something that has been fundamental to his existence from all eternity. Now the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, which happened in the first few centuries of the the Christian church, it was these Christians trying to do justice to passages like this. That Jesus isn't just a man. He's utterly unique. He's God becoming man. That Jesus is truly human in every way. He's truly like us in every way. And so he has come down to us to become one of us, to lift us up to where he is. He is truly human in every way, but truly God, equal to God in every way, in one person. Truly God, truly man. It's the limitedness of human language, even uh, human language inspired by God, being used to describe these eternal, incredible things. And because of this, because of this eternal relationship of uh, uh, joy and love that exists between the Father, Son, and Spirit, because of this, verse 36, Jesus is able to give eternal life to those who trust in Him because receiving the Son sent by God is being swept up into the life and the joy and the love of the eternal God. This is what makes Jesus utterly unique because even John the Baptist, as wonderful as he was, even every leader beforehand, all the way back to Moses, all the way back to Abraham, is only able to tell, to report, is only able to point to something else. But Jesus When we're joined to Jesus by faith, we are swept up into something different. He isn't just pointing to somebody else. He's the one to to whom all the streams of promise point to. And when we come to Him by faith, we are swept up into the eternal joy that belongs to God. And that joy becomes our delight. That joy becomes our joy. That love that cannot run out because it is the very nature of who God is becomes our love. That's wonderful.
Now back, back to John's conversation with his disciples. To explain what might look like failure in this world, um, but is not, John uses the image of a wedding. Look at verse 29. He paints the arrival of Jesus like the arrival of a groom to a wedding. John the Baptist is, he calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. He's the friend of the groom. It's the ancient equivalent of the best man. And he was responsible for arranging the wedding ceremony to taking care of all the details to ensure everything went off without a problem. And John says his role was to be the best man. His role was to prepare all the stuff and his delight is the arrival of the day when the bride and the groom are joined to each other. It's not him trying to elbow in. It's not him saying when uh, it said, does anybody object to this man taking this woman? And John the Baptist says, yeah, I object because I did all this work. No, the bride and the groom are joined together in this wedding ceremony. And it is John's great delight because Jesus, this utterly unique person who can become the fountain of life and goodness and grace for God's people has arrived. The kingdom of God has come. And John says, yes, this is fantastic. My joy is made complete because Jesus is being seen for who he is. His joy at the arrival of the groom to use his image is complete. And it might look like a loss of prominence from the outside. It might look like failure, but it's not failure in the slightest. It's his great delight because of the root of his joy is Jesus being seen for who he is because Jesus in a way that no other human leader can is the source and bringer of joy. The greatest joy for John is not that he would build his brand and it would last forever. It's not that he would gather a bunch of people. His joy is that Jesus, the one who brings grace into our world and his fullness is seen as who he truly is and that Jesus who brings eternal life to all who come to him is pointed to, is made much of. And that's why John says his joy is complete. Not just because his task is fulfilled and it's all over. This isn't John passes away into the annals of history. No, John's joy is complete here and it remains complete for him. Um, Think of it eternally. The delight that John the Baptist has that belongs to him because he sees Jesus glorified. Every time somebody comes to faith, In eternity, John knows Jesus is being made much of. Jesus is being seen for who he is. My joy will not fade. His joy remains because it is rooted in who Jesus is. His joy is secure and fixed, never to run out. And so John the Baptist doesn't need to look around and count heads. He doesn't need to rise and fall on the number of people he baptizes per day because that's not the source of his joy. Jesus is, period. Now, there's a lot that this means for us. We can learn some lessons from John the Baptist from this passage in particular. Now, I want to say this. We're not John the Baptist. We all have very different individual callings uh, from one another. In, In our small church, we have social workers, we have middle school students, high school students, we have artists, we have physical therapists, pharmacists, we have construction workers, we have cooks. We have just about everything, <laughs> every industry that could possibly be and done. Uh, it's just about in our, in our church. And God has placed us all individually in these places, and he's placed us individually together in this church. And we're not John the Baptist. We aren't going to go out into the wilderness and start um, baptizing people at the Cape Fear River. But we have a similar sense of call, I think, even in our individual places that God has put us, 
to redefine what success looks like in our lives according to the worthiness that we have in Jesus. Because me as a pastor and you as whatever God has you in in this season, your sense of identity and worthiness doesn't have to be founded on how well things seem to be going or how badly things seem to be going. Now let me say it's not a stress, it's not a sin to be stressed about work or worried about the future, about life. That's not what I'm saying at all. Worries about <laughs> how ends are going to meet is sometimes part of life. Um, and the goal for us in following Jesus is not to become uh, passionless, emotionless robots that you know things can just rise and fall, but we remain always the same. But what I'm saying here. When we're at the highest highs, when we're at the lowest lows, where do we go with that? When we feel like things are going really well, do we act as if we orchestrated it all? Do we ride high on the feeling that we and we alone have accomplished something amazing just by our own power? Or do we come to God with gratitude that He has called us, in this season at least, to witness to His love for us in things that look like very obvious blessings? Do we develop that virtue of gratitude? Or when things are going not well, when things are going poorly, do we despair as if uh, who we are has been taken away? Or can we begin to lean upon, by faith, uh, God and who He has said we are in Jesus Christ, that we are beloved daughters and sons? Can we take the steps to come to Him in the midst of our difficulties, in our sorrow, in our anger, in our frustration, and be honest with ourselves and be honest with Him and begin to believe that He is faithful to love us today, tomorrow, and forever. Because here's the thing. There's going to be seasons where our lives look and feel like some form of failure. It's not, life is not this one long uh, straight line that goes straight up. It's not a bar graph where things always uh, increase year after year in whatever way. There's going to be lots of seasons that feel like failure, whether that's health, whether that has to do with bank accounts or whatever. And a lot of times, that's going to be 100% out of our control. It's going to be stuff happening that we have no control over. And sometimes, those supposed failures are going to be partially or completely our fault, right? We're going to mess up. But in all of that, in the midst of failure, no matter what kind, the invitation for us is to find our joy and delight in Jesus. He is a never-ending fountain of grace for us, a well that can never run dry. And in a world where this, uh, this door closes, where we sometimes make big mistakes, we can always, always, always come to Him and find the grace and the love that we need. How is this? Because Jesus faced what we could not face down. And Jesus didn't just give us an example to follow. But what he did in his life, death, and resurrection is he secured a place for us to found our identity as dearly loved sons and daughters of God. At his crucifixion, he took away the, uh, the sin that stood between us and God, that we might be reconciled to him. In his resurrection, he defeated the power of death. And consider this, Jesus did everything right. Jesus did everything right. And what happened? His ministry lasted three years, and it ended with uh, the shame of crucifixion, his death on the cross and his followers had dwindled down to a couple of people who stuck by him in the end. That certainly looks like failure. At his death, though, um, a different final word was pronounced. 
He was resurrected from the dead and he received the vindication from the Father. Even for Jesus, his identity wasn't founded on the number of people who were following him. It had dwindled to just a handful of folks when he was on the cross. His identity was founded in the eternal delight of the Father for him and he was raised from the dead even from the power of death and victory, victorious over the power of death. And what this means for us is that we can learn that God is a person, God is a God who brings life to that which is dead. He vindicates those who humble themselves before Him. At His death, the vindication of Jesus wasn't in the number of people that were following Him. He wasn't on the cross saying, well, at least I've got a lot of followers. At least I um, have a big uh, social well, social media. I have a big platform. A lot of people know who I am and I've done some good stuff. No, the vindication of Jesus was the knowledge for Him that despite His suffering at the cross, despite how things had failed or looked like they failed, that His vindication was in God. And he entrusted himself to his faithful creator, knowing that God is a God who brings life to dead places. And though he was facing the power of death in all its strength, that God would raise him from the dead. And that's exactly what he did. God is a God who brings life to dead places. He is a God who brings resurrection. And the pattern of God's faithfulness in the resurrection of Jesus means that we, and me, today, in 2021, and you as well, can entrust all things to Him and know He won't fall flat with you. Your sense of identity, your vindication is sure. And we don't have to run to things that cannot bear the weight of our identity, our so-called success, our bank account, those kinds of things. We can toss those things aside and say, no, my identity is founded on who I am in Jesus Christ, a beloved daughter or son of God. Uh, we can come to him and he becomes our great hope. And like John the Baptist, our joy is complete in Jesus being seen as who he is because he becomes a fountain of joy not just for everybody else but for me as well. And I can come back time and time again. And we're not going to come to the fountain of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ and find that one day there's not enough grace, that the waters run dry. We're not going to come and be disappointed tomorrow or in eternity. No, the grace that's here for us today will be there for us tomorrow. This is the assurance we have in our faith. It's a grace that will sustain us in our sense of worthiness, our identity forever. To quote the uh, fourth century pastor, Augustine, he said, So he, Jesus, handed over his body to be slain so that you wouldn't be afraid of anything that could happen to your body. He showed you in his resurrection after three days what you ought to be hoping for at the end of this age. So he is leading you along because he has become your hope. The story of Jesus becomes our story. And so God loses nothing we entrust to him. And so there's great freedom of this. There's so much outside of our control. There's so much that's inside of our control that we mess up. And we can either tend to respond to the realities of this world where things can go sideways so easily, either by denying the reality that we're not truly in control and trying to control everything and despairing when things don't go our way, or we can uh, kind of give up, afraid that anything we could do for be, would be for nothing. But we're invited to entrust all to the God who has already shown His intentions for us. 
We're not entrusting ourselves to a God we don't know. We're entrusting ourselves to a God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And we can trust that come what may, his love for us is secure. And he's leading us to himself. Which leads me back to what I mentioned at the beginning. Remember what my counselor said to me? God loves you. And he's proven that in Jesus. And he is calling you to where he's calling you. For me, it was church planting in Dunn. He's calling you to where he's calling you for it to be the place where he loves you. God loves you. He's proven it in Jesus. That's the bedrock. And where he's leading you is a place where he is going to pour his love out on you. And so for me, my takeaway was that God wasn't calling me to this for me to be cannon fodder in the kingdom war. He wasn't calling me to this to wear me out. He delights in me. God delights in me. He cares for me. And difficulties may come, but who's going to sustain me? God. His power is made perfect in weakness, and His grace will be seen in me and through me and even in spite of me. And so right now, in all the ups and downs of whatever may be going on, I can be assured that the God who loved me in Jesus loves me now. Who proved his love at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is intent to love me right now where I am. And his grace, that grace that cannot run dry, is more powerful than anything in this world. Darkness, it's more powerful than sin. It's more powerful than even the wiles of of Satan. And his love for me will have the final word. And his love will weave every errant thread into a tapestry of his care for me. And I won't see every part of that. Definitely not while I'm going through it and probably not in the future. And I don't have to know how all of that works. And it's hard to believe, but this is the bedrock of the Christian faith that God will not leave us high and dry. He will not leave us hanging. And I don't have to like every step along the way. That's not what this is saying. That we have to sit in the middle of the difficulties and say, well, this is great. No, (laughs) not at all. But we are called into the intimacy of a relationship with our Creator. Where we can come not just with praise, not just with gratitude, but we can come with anger. We can come with our sorrow. We can weep. We can lament and truly lament and know that we are heard. We are never cast off. We are never forgotten. And that love will have the final word for us. So we need not fear. We need not fear the possibilities of failure. If we don't have to fear God's just wrath against our sin, we don't have to fear the possibilities of supposed failure in the future. (laughs) Now, we're going to be afraid time to time. The harshness and the suffering of this world is real, and we're not called to pretend otherwise, but the destination is set for us. This is leading us back to God, who is love in himself for us to be loved. And so the story of the life of Jesus is our story. Whatever may be faced, even the greatest opposition, followed by the vindication in life of God. That's our story. And so let's face whatever may come. It may look like John the Baptist. It may look like supposed failure from the outside. It might not. But whatever comes, our bedrock is firm and secure 
in Jesus, we are set free to live in the delight of the Father as dearly loved daughters and sons. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the assurance we have in the gospel of who we are in you. I pray that you would teach us and train us in our hearts to trust more and more upon the promise of that, that we might depend upon you in all things, not look to things that can't satisfy, not even look to our own understanding, but that you would move upon our hearts to be people who live out of the, the sense of worthiness that is ours in Jesus. I pray all this in his name. Amen.